this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television and Emily's YouTube channel. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we are recording this the day after the inauguration, so January 21st, and I am so excited about today's guests. Um, Of course, Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro, is here. Hello, Emily. So good to be here. I also want to welcome to the show Karen Tronsgaard Scott. She is the executive director of the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. So glad to have you back on the show, Karen. So great to be here, Olga. Thank you. And finally, um, Sherry, who is an advocate for advocate for the Women's Freedom Center, and uh, she is joining us again today. So glad to have you on the show, Sherry. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start the conversation talking about the inauguration and the aspects of white supremacy that we have been viewing in this country. And You know, it was so interesting when I was watching the inauguration yesterday, as I told Emily, I was hugging my Kleenex box, but (laughs) it it was so strange because it was just like this pandemic in so many ways, because it felt like this huge page was turned when uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris were both sworn in. And yet, as we know, so much has not changed. And the work that we are all doing just is continuing rather than starting anew necessarily. And, you know, for women in this pandemic, many have been hit harder economically or in their uh, sense of safety at home than many of their male counterparts. And so I just want to touch base with all three of you about, okay, this inauguration happened what what are you seeing and and what's next and how about we start with you Emily if you don't mind um sure I you know I think there's a lot you know what I'm gonna say what I really want to say and I'm not sure it's the right thing to say but I'm gonna do it anyway um there was this you know point um during election season when um during the campaigns where you know a lot of interesting stuff came out about um, then candidate Biden's um, behavior. And I had this moment of like really just sort of releasing myself into this idea that pretty much any man who gets to some degree of position of power in this country has probably committed some degree of, you know, sexual harm. such is the nature of like capitalism and power and white supremacy. And I just sort of like settled into that as like, okay, I can work with that reality. Like that's where I'm gonna start from. Um, That seems like easier than being outraged and maybe more useful. And I brought that idea up to a few friends. It was not a very popular idea. Mm. And, but it's still sort of sitting with me because it, for me, it means that we're not like saved by one person. Everything doesn't all change tomorrow. But what I saw yesterday that really inspired me um, was some really incredible poetry, which was an incredible array of women that consciously called up the legacy 
of survivors before them. I mean, you know, there's all of these jokes right now floating around Vermont about like the Bernie memes and his ugly coat and his mittens and whatever. And like, that's really fun. I've enjoyed the Jewish Twitter side of that. But what's more amazing to me is reading these stories about the way the really powerful women at the ceremony were calling on through their fashion choices, all of these women through their legacy. Um, some really interesting stories about um, how Oprah Winfrey offered sort of coats and jewelry to the poet who was reading. There was all of the wearing of purple and honor of Shirley Chisholm. It was just like really incredible, this constant calling on survivor as stepping while we stepped into power, while these women stepped into power. And so for me, it's like really naming and claiming the fact that we're not gonna be saved by just one person. We're gonna be need to, needing to call on our ancestors. We have more work to do, but the people who are doing the work, I think know what it means to work. And that's really exciting, inspiring to me about our next steps. Mm -hmm. Karen, what are, what are you sitting with right now? Well, I just really appreciate your comments, Emily. I think I, I am aligned with so much of what you said. The, um, you know, the, the stark, this, this, the starkness of the transition is really present for me. And this, this notion of, um, you said this, Emily, uh, uh, is out, you asked the question, is outrage the best thing to, is that, is that, is it useful? Is it the best, is it the best um, path forward? And certainly there have been many reasons to feel outraged over, and it's not just about the past four years, it's about, you know, as a woman, about, you know, 2000 years. And um, outrage is such an energy suck. You know, it just drains our energy. And there's, and often, I'm not saying we should be in denial of our feelings, certainly not, but outrage is not a strategy. It's a, you know, so I, I, for, for, I guess for me and speaking for the network, our question is, um, you know, we know it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And the alignment around the sense of we can do this together. In fact, we must do this together and really thinking about what together means, who together, who together is. Uh, President Biden said all of us, I, and that really aligns for me. And that, and in order for, for us to be able to do the work with all of us, you know, thinking about work here in Vermont, it, we will be required to step out of outrage. We actually, we have to do that uh, and step into being, uh, sitting with the humanity of people, even people who cause harm. Recognizing that we all cause harm. We have all caused harm. As a white woman, I can say that I'm, I'm, it's likely that I'm causing harm related to my own internalized racism quite frequently. So, so we, st we step out of outrage, step into being together, step into doing this work together, step into visioning. This is the other thing I heard, a vision, a clear vision for what our world could look like. And so stepping into, stepping away from this idea of this is everything that's wrong and, and you know, we're great diag diagnosticians. Uh, so stepping away from diagnosing and stepping into what are the things, what are the, what are the, what are the actual physical steps needed to get from where we are today to that vision, to get to the top of the mountain, to the gold, you know, to the North Star. That's exciting work. And it's work that's, um, and, it's, and it's not even work, it's a lifestyle, right? And so the, uh, I think, I feel a renewed sense, a re renewed devotion. Uh, Amanda Gorman was the poet yesterday. I thought she was remarkable. 
electrifying, electrifying. And I too wept, I wept the whole day. I'm still weeping. <laughs> Sherry, we'd love to hear from you. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, a, a beautiful question and such um, inspiring answers that, you know, I'm just sort of mulling that over, but I'm really struck. Um, Emily, I also appreciate what you put out there. And, you know, it's an interesting reminder that we're only a few years past when the Me Too movement was making all the news, right? And then so we've been bombarded with so many other massive, um, you know, shocks to the system in so many different ways. But I think what, um, what has become more, first of all, it was fantastic to see that much of a reflection of America up on stage, right? So the diversity of matters, tone matters, tone has shifted. The fact that absolutely people in their very strong voices were weaving in the voices of ancestors, of survivors. And I think, you know, you know, statistically, yeah, you know, if we look at sort of the gendered nature of the harm, there are a lot of men out there who, you know, we have to acknowledge have done harm. But the side is also true. There are a lot of survivors out there because we still have such challenges. And if those survivors are able to get up to the mic now and speak out, that's the transformative justice piece, right? I feel like we hopefully are never going to go back where these conversations weren't even really happening. They're mainstream now, right? There's a lot, we still have a long way to go, but there's also now elements that feel like they're just in the culture now, right? I mean, I don't even want to say just, it's awesome that they're in the culture now, right? That they were braided right through the fabric of the inauguration. So um, I'm I'm super hopeful for that. And yeah, we have a long way to go, but I'd say we're bringing absolutely the best range of allies to the work and, you know, yay for that. Thank you. Um, we will in, in a moment, probably discuss uh, the Vermont Network is has launched a new campaign called Uplift VT. And the Women's Freedom Center is um, in the process of launching a month long conversation series, virtually online, um, with partnering with Brooks Library in Brattleboro, and it's called Inspiring Change 2021. I want to make sure we we get to these. Um, but before we do, I just Personally, I wanted to say to all three of you how much I appreciate your comments and, and hearing you share your responses because, you know, all of them felt very freeing to me. You know, even talking about outrage, but also stepping out of outrage and, and settling into what that new reality might be. And then also talking about survivors and where we all fit into that line of ancestors. Um, I just want to thank you for that because it does feel, I think for me, the biggest feeling is being able to take a deep breath um, when we are working with so many huge things that impact so many people in very unfair ways. Um, Karen, can you tell us a little bit about Uplift VT? Sure, thank you so much for asking. I'm also, I just wanna say by way of introduction, I think one of the real gifts that um, we experience at the Vermont Network is the way that the, the synergy between the work that we're doing on a statewide level and the work that's happening in communities. And so, you know, Women's Freedom Center has been a leader in Brattleboro for so many years. And I've had the great joy of coming to Brattleboro 
um, on occasion and just witnessing the way that the Freedom Center interacts with the community. And this, this, these, um, these sessions, these learning sessions, I mean, they're, they're brilliant. And the, the thing that the Freedom Center does so well is it, it engages community in moving conversations forward, you know, right on the cutting edge. And, um, and so it feels, I feel like this great synergy between what Sherry's gonna talk about and, and, and the Uplift campaign. So um, thank you so much for allowing me to talk a little bit about this. You know, for many years, our movement has really focused on outrage and really focused on the, um, on the, on the terrible harm that's caused in, in relationships where there's violence. And those things are still present. There's still far too many people dying in relationship to domestic violence in our state. There's far too many families that are just ripped apart because of violence in the home. There's far too many people sitting in prison because they've made choices about violence. And, and you know, their families are just, are just uh, so devastated by this. And there's far too many women who experience violence and, and the violence creates a, um, creates a real burden for them to be able to live a life in which they can thrive. Those things are still present for us, but we, we feel like it, this is the moment where um, we can actually uplift the stories of success. We can uplift the, the incredible resiliency that exists in our state. We can uplift the ways in which we can prevent violence uh, you know, across lifetimes. And we can uplift um, uh, you know, the conversation about violence, something Sherry said earlier really struck me about the way that survivors are not talking about their experiences. You know, they're, they're moving beyond the stigma and they're actually being honest with, with friends, neighbors, and with the public about what, 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 what's happening. That is such a powerful, powerful approach. And we want to be able to support survivors to do that. So the Uplift campaign is a multi-year campaign that will engage Vermonters all over the state from any, any part of the state doing any kind of work or not working or working in their homes or retirees or, or youth um, to, to be beacons within their community, to be able to talk about violence and to be able to help folks, uh, direct folks to the help that they need, but also really to create this vision of what it would mean for our state to um, be a place where everybody thrived, where people did not experience violence. And so it, you know, it's not something you can do in just a year. Uh, and, um, but I, you know, I've been at this for 27 years. I've never been so hopeful. I've never been so excited about what's happening in this movement and um, about the Uplift campaign and how the, and the synergies that, are, that exist between um, what we're doing on the statewide level and what's happening in local communities like Brattleboro. Sherry, uh, would you tell us a little bit about um, Inspiring Change in 2021? Absolutely, and Karen, thank you for everything that you've said. Um, we are thrilled to be hosting this conversation and I wanna just underline that like, you know, so many other programs around the state and around the country, like we never could and we never have done our work alone. We are nested um, in a very generous community and that generosity extends in all kinds of directions, including, you know, alert and caring bystanders. And I feel like that's, you know, that's our hope is to continue to sort of fan out what advocacy is because you know what we're looking to do really is kind of 
help people hone the skills for kind of the everyday social justice work that faces us all out in the world. And the reality is, you know, we know statistically, of course, domestic and sexual violence can happen to any of us, any gender and any kind of intimate partner relationship, et cetera. But overwhelmingly, of course, it's experienced by women. One in three women will experience domestic or sexual violence at some point in their lives. So human knows so many survivors, whether they know that about them or not, which means we're all coming up against those survivors. And the conversations we want to have in our community is to bring out um, what it means to be an active bystander, that line between an advocate and a bystander, right? It's, um, it's pretty fluid there. And, you know, we know also that um, advocates aren't necessarily the first people survivors turn to. So these rich conversations in the community are to have everyone um, be a part of the work, basically. And so what we're hoping to have um, is this month-long dialogue with our community. And every conversation is going to build on the one before. So we really recommend people trying to attend all four of them. And we're first going to give, just for folks who maybe aren't as familiar, a bit of an outline about how we do, but in a broader social context, just to set the stage. But the whole four um, winter evenings that we're going to be spending um, are going to be pretty interactive. We want to hear from the community, questions they've got, their own best thinking. And we're going to be looking at, you know, um, the, the fundamental question question is, how do we work towards a society where violence is no longer acceptable, right? Like, how do we get there from here? And so we'll look at, you know, aiming for economic and legal justice, all from an intersectional lens, basically. Um, media literacy across the lifespan. And that can be not just the media we consume, having a critical understanding of that, but the media we ourselves might be creating, the messages we ourselves might be sending out there. And then again, you know, deep down, it comes down to bystander empowerment and not just around um, domestic and sexual violence, but really some skills for addressing any kind of oppression that we're all witnessing. So that's our ambitious hope, but we are, you know, we, I would say primarily it's, you know, it's also like a listening session to hear from our community, but we've got some interesting content um, planned. So we invite all listeners to participate. They can contact us. Basically um, the evening start, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, it's a collaboration with Brooks Memorial Library. These are four Thursday evenings from seven to 8 PM and they start February 11th. So four straight Thursdays from then on. Thank you. Hey, uh I have so many questions. Um, I, first of all, I just, the way you described winter evening, Sherry, it sounded so delightful. Um, <laughs> I had a friend this morning say hi winter to me as a phrase. And I, all of a sudden, everything sounded very exciting and glamorous and not <laughs> And you did the exact same thing. It all just sounded delightful all of a sudden. Um, and such a wonderful way to really, such, it's such the time to build community and connect deeply. Um, and that's what I'm really struck by with both of this like interlocking initiative that you're both doing, that it's really moving beyond the experience of the individual and um, even the small communities that are built around that individual and really into what, what can in our communities do, what our community must do to envision this new future. And I'm really um, very inspired and I'm really excited and I'm really curious um, how, how we sort of bring 
bring people into this work more of talking about harm that they have done and still feeling held. Um, many years ago, I did a lot of work in South Africa, um, which at that time had the highest sexual violence, um, intimate partner violence rate outside of a war zone in the world, um, which unfortunately I knew before I flew there. And um, they had these huge programs that were really sort of elevating the voices and the faces of folks who had done harm, who had, um, and telling sort of the story of coming out of that in this very like redemption story, um, a lot of pizzazz. And it was a very different culture. There was a certain amount of sort of hero worship that was built into it. This like very much role model of someone coming out the other side, this redemption story. Um, but I also see a lot of space for this idea that only someone who's, you know, if we're either harming or being harmed or very rarely is it either that clear, there's often a lot of harming back and forth. Um, and then I know you're bringing that complexity into this conversation for some, you know, really some of the first times in America. Um, but that we can't find our way out of those relationships unless we can actually imagine what the other side looks like. And so you're, you're helping us, all of us entangled in these relationships, imagine what the other side of that is. And Sherry, I hear you saying you're helping us build the skills to like actually be in those new spaces. So how do you, how do, you do that? What is that really like? What are the mechanics of that? Is that? It's such a beautiful and fundamental question. And I would say really, you know, we, we sort of highlight the skills all of us already have. And we trust the instincts that in, you know, most good-hearted humans already tell us, mm, that didn't feel okay, that interaction just now. Or, you know, for instance, the Freedom Center, and I'm sure a lot of other programs, we host um, bystander empowerment workshops to help end sexual harassment in workplaces, for instance. This was a direct outgrowth of the Me Too movement. Um, and you know, some of the things we've learned in those conversations and, you know, others have said this before us, it doesn't feel good to not know what to do or to not have some sense of strategy. And so one of the things at the Freedom Center that we always wanna let our community know, um, you know, is that we are also, we obviously are, you know, primarily a resource for survivors, but we also wanna be a resource for, um, concerned bystanders. And we do, like one of our first columns, we have a pretty regular column in the different area newspapers. Um, one of our first columns when the lockdown first happened was, you know, how to help create a lifeline for survivors who may be locked in right now. And we did get some calls about that where people were wanting to help and they just wanted to run by an advocate. You know, what do you think? How could I just maybe get your hotline number to this person? Would that be uncomfortable? Or I want, you know, I don't want to create more um, challenge for that person. But those kinds of up to the minute um, navigating, we are here for people to have those kinds of conversations, even one on one on our hotline. That's happened. But more um, to get back to your question, sort of more formally in the things or not, you know, our workshops aren't formal. They're pretty interactive. But anything we host, we want to just underline, like, what are the instincts already? Because we say the same to survivors that they absolutely 
need and deserve to trust their own instincts and how they navigate. And some of that, I would say, certainly holds true for for bystanders to to jump in too, right? No situation is the same. Every bystander's comfort zone is going to be a little bit different. But we want to talk about what some options are and to, to go all the way sort of upstream from this when we have these conversations about like, how do we change our culture? How do we redefine what's acceptable, I think we first have to almost transform, what do we mean by community? And at some end of that, it's gonna include voices of offenders to take some ownership. It's include all of us to collectively have accountability so that these are no longer just things that happen behind closed doors or well, you know, that's my good friend. I know he's probably not great with his girlfriend. Again, I'm using sort of the gender default stereotypes. We know it can happen to anyone, but, so that we all feel like, mm, I can't just brush that uh, you know, under the rug. I am gonna need to say something and then call an advocate, pick our brain a little bit and then trust your own instinct. But I feel like that's, those are the, the I mean, those are like the deep soul conversations that need to happen about what's, how others are suffering and, and you know, who do we help and who would help us in a bind like that? So that was my long answer to your beautiful question. And then Karen, how do you, how do you take that broader stealth of helping us all well, in this other Yeah, I, I really appreciate this question. The, what comes to mind for me is the, um, the moment that I realized that all the, all the things that I was thinking about people who cause harm in their intimate partner relationships, and primarily men who do that, could be applied to me by my friends who are women of color or Black women. So there's this... this the, and I'm not talking, I'm not saying that I engage in coercive violence with, uh, you know, with my black friends. What I'm saying is that there's a system at play, you know, the system of sexism, misogyny, the system of racism, they're intertwined, they intersect. And um, we've often, I think as a movement, we have tried to separate those historically. And in fact, this summer we signed on to a letter called the moment of truth letter, which was a letter to, um, to, to BIPOC folks in the movement from white women in the movement that, um, you know, speaking of South Africa, we, we admitted what we've done as a movement. We admitted that we have ignored their, um, their warnings about, uh, about creating this relationship between the criminal legal system that would result in so many people of color being arrested uh, under under the the banner of domestic violence, sexual assault, we we realized that the 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 punishments that the the system mets out would be differentially imposed upon people of color, and then we made commitments, and so we made we made a series of I think there's six or seven commitments um, for change, and we're you know we're operationalizing those. So this idea that the, you talked about the gray, Emily, the gray is that we are all of us oppressed and the oppressor all at the same time. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just so enmeshed. So as an organization like the network, one of the things we can do is to make these commitments and then take them seriously and build our policy platform upon them. So, so we're, you know, what we're talking about are things like invest in, in social services rather than a, in a law enforcement response to social problems. Um, remove police from schools, replace police with social workers. Uh, decriminalize survivor. So decriminalize sex work, decriminalize, um, you know, other kinds of things that, that people engage in because they're trying to survive. Um, 
an emphasis on safe and affordable housing and, um, and an emph emphasis on, on policies that will build economic security. Uh, we're about to issue a report on the economic impact of, of domestic and sexual violence on our state. The, the information that we're we, were we will be releasing is shocking. It's, uh, it costs us so much. So, you know, all of this information, all of these commitments, and then the realization that um, we, we actually have to talk to people who cause harm. You know, we have to engage people who cause harm and to find a way to, to be in relationship with them in, with their humanity. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's really important for us to use a trauma-informed lens when we look at people who cause harm and understand what they're coming from. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about at the network. And then, as I said, this, 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 this list I just read is, the, is what we're basing a lot of our policy platform on right now. And if Sharon, I could just, oh, sorry. Quickly, Sherry, because we have to go to break. Sorry. Okay, I'm gonna let you, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, you thank you. So sorry about that, everyone. As you can tell, great conversations. We need to quickly hear on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. We need to hear from our underwriters, but we shall be back in a moment. Don't go away. Happy hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser, who is the regular contributor on this show, as well as Karen <laughs> Tronsgaard-Scott, who is the executive director of the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, as well as Sherry, who is an advocate at the Women's Freedom Center. So thank you very much for all of you for being here. Um, and I would love to remind our listeners that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happier, Happy Hour are those <laughs> of the guests and the host individually, not of the station. And the views expressed of each guest are not necessarily the views of the other guests. We are all our own individual beings expressing our own individual opinions here in the Montpelier Happy Hour. Isn't that exciting? It is exciting. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Sherry, before we, we go to you, I just want to thank all, all three of you um, with this conversation about how do we work with the, the people who have done harm? Um, because so often I feel as a reporter when I am watching... Um, conversations around social justice, there is a lot of, of focus on acknowledging the harm, but there's not, it, it feels to me like there's, there's not a lot of conversation about what happens after that. And for Vermont, which is such a small state, just pushing someone out to the side in our small communities may not actually work. We're still going to see the folks who cause harm, whether it's us or someone else, in the grocery store. Um, and and so I, I just feel like that is a conundrum we face in our communities a lot. And so I just so, so appreciate um, this conversation. And I thank you for that. Um, Sherry, right before we went to, to break, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about soul searching and, and healing. Yeah, absolutely. And what I was just going to say, um, you know, 
like a lot of other people, I have done advocacy now for a good chunk of time. And I see all the rich ways that part of the healing journey for survivors and that survivors themselves go on, you know, um, involves soul searching, right? And so that's, that's the way that we do our advocacy is to um, have offerings for that and conversations, et cetera. And I feel like that our current system is not really, there's not a forum as much um, for that kind of deep soul searching for offenders, right? And um, that taking accountability is certainly the first step. And that's not saying offenders can't make that decision and get that help and do that soul searching. But, you know, if that's not happening in a broader social context, it's concerning because as we all know, this is a serial behavior, right? We may be able to get one partner out of that situation or they may get themselves out with some help, et cetera. But unless we as a culture can have some deep transformative impact on that offender, then we as a program will just be working with their next partner and their next partner, right? That's where the problem lies. So I think as a culture in the 40, almost 50 years that we've had programs has done a lot to have supports for survivors, but that real deep dive conversation that includes everybody in working with um, offenders is still kind of, you know, earlier in its beginning stage. So I really am inspired by those conversations about restorative and transformative justice. Karen, talk to us a little bit about um the Violence Against Women Act. And Emily raised a, a wonderful question during the break about, so how does this act fit into, um, if we want to do away with more, a more uh, carceral state, how, does this, how do those two things mesh? It's a great question. Um, you know, the Violence Against Women Act was originally passed in 1994 and it was part of the, that, the, the big crime bill of 1994. So it created this marriage between the work of organizations like the network and the Women's Freedom Center, the, you know, the money that we receive through the Violence Against Women Act actually requires us to create pathways um, of, uh, around justice for survivors vis-a-vis -vis the criminal legal system. And we know that, uh, we know that many, many, many survivors, more than 50% of survivors generally don't wanna be involved with the criminal legal system. But the Violence Against Women Act has been reauthorized. It's been reauthorized many times since 1994, it gets reauthorized every three or, three or four years, depending on the will of the Congress. And, um, and each year, this, this big giant federal bill is, um, is amended to make it more responsive to what's happening in the field. So over these years, since 1994, the Violence Against Women Act has created a pathway to fund many, many marginalized groups to do work with survivors, and we, uh, as well as people who cause harm. And so, you know, we don't want to lose that aspect of um, the Violence Against Women Act. The other thing, though, that the Violence Against Women Act does, besides creating this this marriage between the work of domestic and sexual violence um, services providers and the criminal legal system is it, 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 it doles out funding according to a formula. And, um, and there's, a, there's a, I don't wanna to go too deep in the weeds, but there is a formula that comes into, the, into many, most of the communities in Vermont that requires that um, about 66% of the money that comes into the community is focused on and given to the criminal legal system and only 33% given to victim services. And we know that victim services actually, you know, 
should get more, more of that money. So when we take a look at the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, now we're about three years overdue. The, the, the bill has been sitting uh, in Congress, but because of the gridlock in Congress, no, it hasn't um, moved. Um, but we think that under the Biden administration, this that the bill will move. You know, a, a few years ago, our own Senator Patrick Leahy was the primary sponsor of the Violence Against Women Act, and the progress we made that year was remarkable. In that bill, we were able to insert protections for LGBT survivors, tribal survivors, and um, immigrant survivors. And Senator Leahy deserves uh, an incredible amount of credit for that work. Um, but we're hoping with this new um, authorization that we get the opportunity to revisit that funding formula. That's, that's gonna be really important. Um, victim services are, are underfunded in general. And I know in Vermont, I, you know, I sit on the oversight committee for this, this funding source. And very often we see that, the, that some of the money from, that goes to the criminal is not spent. So, um, so we wanna, you know, we really wanna be thoughtful about that. I'm always gonna advocate for victim services. And I think that it's important to know that, um, you know, Sherry talked about this uh, restorative and transformative justice. This is the front, the, like the next frontier in our work. So offering survivors a path that does not necessarily include the criminal justice system as a means for finding justice, but, but includes a restorative uh, or transformative process. So, um, so that people who cause harm have the opportunity to take a hard look at, at their the harm that they've caused, um, offer ways, reparative ways to address it, and um, and and build some skills around uh, responding to to things in their relationship and in and in, in their own trauma in ways that are not so harmful. Emily, as a lawmaker, um, what what is this conversation uh, bringing up for you? You know, the first thing that it brought up for me. Um, I have a huge amount of gratitude for Senator Leahy, and I also have a huge amount of gratitude for Senator Leahy's team. Mm -hmm. um, and Thumbs similarly, up. I have a huge amount of gratitude to the staff I work with in the legislature, because they are so amazing, more amazing than I am. Um, and I have not spent any time with Senator Leahy, so I'm not sure if his staff is more amazing than he is, but I am sure they do a lot of really good work to be um, supporting Vermonters. And so, um, as I reflect on the new administration and the power beyond one leader, I really want to like, I'm setting an intention here about really being cognizant that politicians um, always have a huge crew of people backing them up in their good work. Um, so other thoughts, um, which are less abstract. I, I think that's amazing. And I, you know, I had this really interesting experience a couple weeks ago where someone came into the Brattleboro, one of the Brattleboro Restorative Justice programs um, because they had threatened um, violence towards um, the legislature. And not towards me personally, but because I had relationships with this particular restorative justice program in Brattleboro, they asked me if I would sort of stand in as the symbolic victim. Um, or harmed party um, and was able to, it helped me really get in touch with my own fear and my own experiences and my own, my own thoughts about sort of, you know, harm and being in harm's way and, um, you know, white supremacy and violence and all of that that's floating in the air right now. 
Um, but the thing I became so conscious of was what an opportunity it was for us to see each other's humanity. Mm. Um, and how we both wound up in these two boxes where I was the one um, talking about the harm and this other person was the one talking about why they had harmed. Um, and now I have this really incredible letter from this person, but I don't, this was a very abstract experience for me. I was just a symbol. Um, and when I imagine what doing this work is like in the context of the deeply intertwined emotional mess that's in any romantic relationship I've ever been in. I, <laughs> um, I just, I, I think sometimes we talk about safety too much um, because, you know, there's something really beautiful on the other side of it, but I just, I can't get my head around how to, how to have these conversations um, with someone who has been so deeply harmed in a way that they can feel held and like they're in charge of their own destiny. Like I, I can intellectually imagine the transformation, but I have such a hard time getting my body into that transformation. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, have you, I assume that you've witnessed some of this to some degree and you could, can, you talk, can we talk about that? Please, Sherry or Karen, do either of you wanna? Sherry, I'll defer to you. Okay, well, so I would say um, at the Freedom Center, this is still a conversation that we are deeply engaged in, like, you know, sort of whether and how um, to shift some of the ways we do the work. And because, you know, we are always, I mean, we always start with what an individual survivor might want. And what we know, right, is there are definitely a lot of survivors who have not felt um, uh, either are not using the current system for any number of reasons, maybe don't feel safe using that system, don't believe in that system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the flip side is going to also hold true. There may be survivors who feel like, you know, in theory, I might go and be on a speaker's panel of survivors to offenders, let's say, hypothetically, but not if it's my ex. Mm -hmm. I, I have no stomach for that, right? And we want to mm -hmm. honor there is no one way to heal. Um, there are no steps that work for any survivor, no matter what they are, right? And we always wanna keep that nuanced and completely respectful frame um, so that survivors can navigate. And, you know, again, so there, you know, the various options, obviously, uh, you know, an individual survivor may decide they wanna be in some sort of circle where they've got support as they're, facing and speaking to and listening to the offender in their own situation, hats off if they are up for that and it feels like it's meaningful for them. And hats off if an offender, you know, is able to really make some sort of, I mean, this is, it's all psychology, right? Make some sort of deeper change. So we want to leave that room, door, door open to that for those who want it. But it would, you know, certainly from our perspective need to be an opt-in thing. The last thing we need is survivors feeling like they're being swept along in a movement that's pressuring them that they really ought to be oh, kumbaya or, you know, or what, you know, anything, let's like all sit in a circle of support and they might 
you know, be thinking, where was my circle of support? You know, totally get that, right? People on their journeys are going to be anywhere in their reaction. And we totally respect that. And we always try to meet survivors, not only where they are, but where they are in this moment in time. And again, right, a year or two later after they're safe from that partner, they may decide, you know what, I will though come and speak to some somebody else's offender. I will at least share my story because that's my healing journey. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we want to leave it open. It's a, it's a very, you know, the, I would say that the paint is wet still, you know, and how this is going to um, play out in our culture, but um, it's, it gives me hope. It gives me hope as another option. Mm -hmm. I would say that, so first of all, it's not an either or, and I think Sherry spoke to this. There's survivors, we should be supporting survivors no matter what they want to see happen. We want to, and we want to make sure that if survivors call the police and want to go through the prosecutorial process that 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 system is well prepared mm -hmm. very best like if somebody calls the police they need the police and we need the police to be there and be you know on top of it so um but for many survivors as, as, as sherry said that's not the that's not the the um that's not the pathway now we have a law here in vermont a state law that um that um removes the ability of um, community justice centers from doing domestic violence cases in, yep. uh, as a part of their caseload. Uh, and I was present when we passed that law and I really supported it. And we now know that we want to change that law, but we feel like there's some work that has to happen before we, we you know, we do not want to just say, okay, you know, do domestic violence cases because a domestic violence case is, is fundamentally different or sexual violence case fundamentally different than uh, you know a, an act of vandalism or a threat to the legislature, and so we are working to restore justice community here in Vermont. And you know we're the home, Vermont is the home of the National Center on Restorative Justice at the Vermont Law School, so we're working with them as well <clears throat> to create a, a, a framework for how to work, and 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 specifically then to be able to deliver training and create uh, relationships between the Community Justice Center and the organization like the Women's Freedom Center, if the organization wants to engage in that relationship. Um, the other thing that is really important to understand is um, so often we think about an intervention that's happening right at the moment of crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and really, I think restorative justice offers great promise two or three years down the line when a survivor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is part of their healing process. And any restorative justice process, to be driven by the by the decisions of the survivor. Even if we're six weeks into a process and they say, I don't want to do this anymore, then we don't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's got to be, it's the, the, the process, the restorative process is really about healing for the survivor. And mm -hmm. so to answer Olga's question about what do I think of as a legislator in all of this, when I talk about this, I think about how far our intentions often um, our legislative intentions can be from the reality of the way things are implemented on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I think about the restorative justice, some of the incredible restorative justice programs that I know of in our community and the individuals who might've been doing that work for a very long time who have no background in intimate partner violence. Um, and that for me, I think the knowledge base around intimate partner violence is much longer and harder to obtain than the sort of framework of restorative justice practices. Um, and that's my bias. I'm sure some deep restorative justice practitioners would probably say the opposite, I have no idea. Um, but I think about that, I think about 
what, um, how grant funding works. Um, and let's say you have this program and you have these people that are dropping out of the program because that's in their best self-interest three weeks in and what that looks like for your deliverables. Um, and so I'm like, that's what I find myself thinking about because I'm so aware of the legacy of funding of this entire movement around violence against women and how it started as this incredible, beautiful, collective movement of non-hierarchical organizations and how funding and funding structures like really, you know, forced a lot of the freedom centers into hierarchy. And now you're like all working so hard to get back to where you were. Um, and so I just want us to do this right. Cause I think there's so much beauty and community healing on the other side of it. Um, if we can really bring, if we can keep on having these conversations publicly and out loud so that we know that we all have a responsibility in them. Yeah, and if I can just add one more thing. What I love that's happening now is this kind of cross-pollination, you know, to use that phrase, I guess, um, of different, um, you know, realms or arenas in our culture. And, you know, we obviously any program, whether it's the court or, you know, law enforcement in some new version or a restorative or transformative justice program, it's gonna come down to the quality of attention they give to the participants, right? And if it's, and so, you know, if we, you know, we certainly as advocates feel very invested to make sure we're part of any training about not getting pulled into colluding with a batterer because you've now been spending all this time and they can be very charming, but how do we in a respectful way hold each other and ourselves accountable for things. And if the quality of that conversation is richer than anything that has been happening thus far, and I wanna say there are also quality batter intervention programs as well and skilled and compassionate facilitators that do their best even in the system we've got. Mm -hmm. Collectively as a culture, if we zoom out, we realize we're really still treading water. You know, we have not made that much progress. We've made a lot of progress in helping the individual survivors out, but batterers of this generation sound very much like their grandfather's generation, is my guess, right? So if we want to keep doing that, how do we have deeper unlearning conversations about gender socialization, about using violence, and just all the inequalities in our culture that can fuel some of these things to happen. You know, how do we dig deeper and uproot the, the mass of it? And because it's intersectional, I think the cross-pollination, we need to be sort of talking across um, original silos. I think that's where we're headed. And you know, I say yay to that. We have uh, just a little over five minutes left. Um, I know the time goes so fast. I just want to touch in with, with Karen and Sherry both. Um, what do you think is really important to leave listeners with? Because um, this is, I mean, this is such a deep, deep topic, topic healing and violence. I mean, where do we go? Where do we go next? Well, I just want to say that um, for me, the way forward, uh, you know, is reflected by the comments that President Biden made in his inaugural address. And the, so the way forward is in community. The way forward is through love. The way forward is through responsibility and, um, and through learning how to live with our differences 
and still see each other's humanity, including differences about how we feel people should behave in their intimate partner relationships. Mm -hmm. I just wanna say that um, it's such a privilege for me to be on this show with all of you, uh, especially with Sherry from Women's Freedom Center. Uh, Brattleboro is blessed to, to have such an incredible organization. Um, really the whole of Wyndham, Wyndham County is blessed to have this organization doing the work that they do in the, in, in, um, on behalf of survivors there. So and behalf of, on behalf of the whole community, they're really, uh, I have so much deep admiration for their work and it's just great to be in the same room with Sherry. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so appreciate that. Um, you know, I would say what, what gives me the most hope about this is what we know is that nobody's born about her, right? It's violence is a learned behavior. That means it's a taught behavior. And collectively as a culture, this is on us to take responsibility to, to create different teachings, I would say, right? And that's every single person is welcome to these conversations. You know, everybody has a stake in having these conversations. Um, going forward, I, I have hope. You know, I think at every different event that we host, there are new faces, you know, and my hope is for the event that starts on February 11th, we'll have some new faces um, and that people feel um, welcome and able to speak up if they want to. Um, it's not mandatory. People can also just come and listen to that um, four-part series, but this is how we grow. This is how we heal. And I think we all deserve a culture that looks in that direction. So um, as always, you know, we welcome a chance to have these conversations. So thank you, um, all of you. you know, I have so much respect for everybody's uh, contribution to this conversation and thanks for having us in it. Thank you. Um, I think what I'm sitting with right now is how much of this conversation just naturally went back to power structures. Even the hierarchy of how funding is is sent to organizations and um, just, yeah, again, what we think is normal is may not really be what is possible or what is the best. <laughs> um, so thank you uh, for for bringing that forward. Um, Emily, any last thoughts before we, we head out? Oh, I really, I appreciate being in community with all of you and that we can imagine something else even while we care for what is. That Thank sounds you. like a toast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so here's to, um, how did you say it, Emily? Caring for what's possible? Uh Imagining what's possible while caring for what is. I think that might be what I said. It's a good one. I like that. Love it. It's here, a great here, note everybody. to end on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, um, uh, Karen Tronsgard Scott from the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. <laughs> it's always a mouthful. Sorry about that, Olga. Thank you. <laughs> and and Sherry from the the Women's Freedom Center. Um, I will be putting links to both their websites in our show notes at uh, the Montpelier happy hour.captivate.fm website. So if you want to find more information on any of their, their programs, you can go there. Emily, if folks need to find you. You can go to emilykornheiser.org and there you'll find links to my phone number, all of my social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as a link to my weekly community conversations every Saturday at 10 a.m. via Zoom. And the Montpelier Happy Hour is 
on 2 o'clock on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, as well as Emily's YouTube page, as I said, the Vermont, the Montpelier Happy Hour .captivate.fm website, and on BCTV. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend.